Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and this week we have a special summer reading podcast which is going to look at two very, very interesting books that have come out in recent times. Our central topic is superpowers, how they think of themselves and how they're preparing to engage with the rest of the world. The first book which we will talk about is called Superpower, Three Choices for America's Role in the World by Ian Bremmer. And the second book is about China. It's called China's Strong Arm, Protecting Citizens and Assets Abroad by Jonas Perello-Plesner and Mathieu Duchatel. So my first interview is with Ian Bremmer, who's the president and founder of Eurasia Group, author of many books, columnist for Time magazine, geopolitical seer extraordinaire. So he's here with me to talk about his latest book, Superpower, Three Choices for America's Role in the World. It's a book that was published in May. It offers a searing critique of the confusions of American foreign policy and lays out some options for America's role in the world. Ian, do you want to lay out the basic thesis of the book? Sure. Um, I would say uh, the, uh, the reason for the book is that uh, I feel that uh, since the Soviet Union has collapsed, uh, U.S. foreign policy has been marked uh, by a reactiveness, a risk aversion, um, and uh, also um, a lack of, of global strategy, uh, and that's gotten that's gotten greater uh, over the last 25 years. Uh, and uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, while the America is not in decline, while it remains the world's only superpower, and and that's not going to change anytime soon, um, it 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 also means that countries around the world as well as American citizens, really don't know what America stands for anymore. And so the bulk of the book talks about what the options are for the United States to develop a global strategy going forward. And rather than put forward, you know, sort of one notion of here's what America has to do, um, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that a country that is uh, the world's largest, uh, most powerful um, uh, has only one choice. And so I laid out what I thought were the three most, most uh, plausible um, foreign policy strategies for the U.S. Talk about what they are and what the implications are. So your first one is about uh, independent America. Um, do you want to tell us what, that's, what, what that involves? In, independent America basically says that it's great for America to say uh, that we're going to be the world's uh, you know, sort of policemen. It's great for us to commit to our allies. It's great for us to paint red lines. But if we're not going to actually live up to them, we should stop. So we shouldn't say that Assad must go. We shouldn't say that ISIS must be destroyed. We shouldn't say Russia must leave Ukraine. Um, and, and instead, um, and we shouldn't be promoting our values uh, internationally, which doesn't really work. Um, we, we should really be focusing on foreign policy, not to solve other people's problems, but just to focus on America's. It'll be much more limited, much more unilateral. So it'll use more 21st century tools of coercive diplomacy, like uh, like cyber surveillance and attack, uh, like um, the weaponization of finance uh, sanctions, what we saw in FIFA, for example, um, as well as drones. 
and that America will lead, but will lead by example. In other words, it will be what America does in terms of living up to its own values at home, as well as building a strong country, that that will be more effective uh, in getting China to align itself with the U.S. much more than any effort of, uh, of containment or alliance building in the region. And how much does that quest for independence simply mean uh, stopping being the global superpower and how much of it is actually trying to carve out some spheres of independence from other players, whether it's energy independence or thinking about how to insulate yourself from being from Chinese cyber surveillance and other kinds of things? Uh, I, I think it's absolutely um, the latter and not the former. Uh, I think an independent America is not an abdication of superpower. Um, it would still be very clear that the United States uh, would be the world's uh, sole uh, superpower on, on most every front, on the military front, on the technological front, uh, on the energy, on the food front, um, and, uh, and, and certainly in terms of, uh, of soft power. Uh, economically, of course, the Chinese will become the world's largest economy, and that will be true in the next 10 years, irrespective of which of these three, three choices America chooses. But no, it won't be a superpower in any other way. Um, but uh, but, but th that, that does not mean the fact that the United States um, is focusing on foreign policy more unilaterally means that America's superpower status uh, may not necessarily be something uh, that its allies are very happy about. Um, and so there definitely would be consequences in terms of the multilateral relationships that America has uh, around the world. Okay. Um, so on your second uh, scenario, that, you call that Moneyball America. Do you want to tell us what that means? Well, Moneyball came from Michael Lewis's book uh, and movie um, where the Oakland A's, you know, sort of basically threw out the old rule book and they said, look, we just want to win. And so we're not going to do things the way we used to. We just want to see what's going to actually work for our team. And here, Moneyball would be focusing not on promoting American values, either at home or abroad, but instead on getting value back for the American taxpayers. Um, and so that really, it's a very unsympathetic, un unsentimental policy. Uh, in, in the sense that it recognizes that uh, a country like China is not going to become a support free markets uh, if we promote it or human rights, that the Russians are not going to support uh, political liberalization or democracy. And even if they would in the Middle East, the outcomes would not be things that we would necessarily want to see. Um, Moneyball uh, is prepared to actually engage in very multilateral uh, policies. It's prepared to support alliances, but not all over the world. Moneyball really is about taking bets. In the same way corporations have a limited amount of money, uh, and so as a consequence, they'll make the biggest bets in the areas that they really think are going to pay off, and the other parts will be effectively ignored. The Moneyball is really about picking those areas where the U.S. should be making the biggest difference. So if China is the biggest adversary, then the U.S. is going to have the most to do multilateral, uh, uh, internationally in Asia. Uh, and that means really build. It's very supportive of the TPP, very supportive of the Asia pivot, very supportive of building American military and alliances in this part of the world. But it also says that a pivot means taking your foot off of something else. So stop doing the Middle East. Get out of Israel-Palestine negotiations. Um, you know, stop with the bases in that part of the world that matters so much less for the Americans. Um, you know, sort of stop putting all of the forces and trying to combat terrorist organizations 
that are much more problematic uh, in the Middle East for the Gulf states themselves and for the Europeans than they are for the United States. And on something like Russia and NATO, that depends on the Europeans. If the Europeans are going to step up in a, co in a coherent way and, and, and they're going to do a lot um, to, uh, to build NATO and to try to, uh, to fend off the Russians, then the Americans would support it. But if they don't, then NATO is not going to matter so much. Okay, so Moneyball is means being clever about the use of money. So it's not a mercantilist foreign policy. It's uh, it's just one which is efficient, which is uh, on the cheap. Yep, that's right. So your third uh, America is one which is maybe more familiar. At least it's more. Uh, it runs through the rhetoric of every single American uh, president almost uh, since time began. The idea of an indispensable America. Tell us what that looks like. Yes. Indispensable America, you're absolutely right, is the one that we've been talking about for a long time now. Um, it, it says, look, e even though most Americans don't want to be the global policeman, if America doesn't lead internationally, nobody else will. And this will ultimately be bad, not just in other parts of the world, but it will also hurt the Americans. Uh, and so that means that if if the Saudis are not prepared to take the lead in destroying ISIS, that the U.S. has to do it. And the U.S. is going to have to put together a multilateral coalition, but America is going to be the one that takes charge. And the same thing will be true in terms of Russia um, and, uh, and the invasion uh, of Ukraine. Uh, the same thing would be true in terms of trying to maintain the Eurozone, its sanctity, to ensure that there would be a strong transatlantic relationship. And also that America is going to continue to promote its values around the world, um, that uh, just as it did with the Soviet Union, it wasn't America's military might by itself that ultimately defeated the Soviets. Um, it was American soft power. It was the, the power of the, the idea of the free markets, of the power of human rights and liberal democracy that the Americans promoted through, uh, you know, Voice of America at Radio Free Europe. And that this is something that even though it won't get done tomorrow, that over the long term, Ultimately, the way that you project American power and the way that you ensure sustainability and global peace of the geopolitical environment um, is to promote American values as universal values. No other country would do that. So indispensable America, clearly a very different choice. So if we go through these three different pathways, to what extent do you think it's possible for the country actually to choose one of them. Because as you kind of say in the book, one of the reasons why people are so confused by American leadership is that it does seem to oscillate from one course to another. There's no clear sense of, of where the country's going. But there's also maybe less of a consensus amongst the political elite than there has been for a long period of time. How, how would you actually get to choosing one of these three routes? Well, I mean, I think there's a very big difference between choosing uh, a strategy, having a strategy, having a mission statement and leading, um, and, and then thinking that that means that um, in response to every policy uh, crisis that emerges, that you suddenly have a playbook. You do not. Um, but, but you do actually need to choose. Uh, in other words, um, you know, just as you, any leader in the world needs to actually stand for something that people, that people can actually follow, it needs to be coherent, uh, both the American people um, and America's allies you know, have for a very long time actually knew what America stood for. They understood American values. They understood America's mission statement. They understood what was and wasn't important for the United States over the long term. That's really gone away, and that's really weakened America's position 
in the world, its ability to get what it wants. You know, when, if you've got a relationship with someone, a family member, a spouse, and something has changed, and you know that because you know this person very well, and you say, what's, what's up? What's wrong? And they say, nothing. It's exactly the way it used to be. Um, not only do they know you're lying, but they assume the absolute worst. They assume that, you know, it's cancer or it's an affair or it's, it's because you're not the reason you're not telling them that must mean it's something that's truly horrible. And so, I mean, I do think that the Americans have to really come clean with the international community and with their own citizens um, in what it is that the United States actually wants to accomplish. And I think from that goal that comes very much from the American president, I mean, unlike domestic policy, a U.S. president can actually take the lead um, on foreign policy issues or, or, or choose not to. Um, I think from, from that, um, you, you, then, you then have um, a, a, a much greater capacity for the United States to address what is an increasingly dangerous and volatile geopolitical environment. Yeah, no, I mean, in the book, you, you look very eloquently at uh, the counter-argument that America's been well-served by strategic ambiguity, and I, I think you kind of, um, you kick that, um, you, you put the, the opposite case uh, along very well, but I'm still not entirely clear how the country ends up choosing someone. Is it just because they elect a president who has a mandate for one of these three models, or is something going to have to go really badly wrong? Well, that, that's that's the point. Is that one of those two things will happen, and you hope it's the former and not the latter. I mean, those, so the reason I wrote this, your question gets at why I wrote the book, because I, I would make the argument that in the last twenty five years, the greatest and gravest damage that has been done to America's um, uh, to, uh, to American power and to American sustainability over the long term was. The overreaction, the, the breathtaking overreaction to 9-11. In other words, it was self-inflicted. Yeah. And this was, we're talking about trillions of dollars. We're talking about enormous hit to American credibility and leadership. We're talking, of course, about millions of lives shattered, uh, both, both in terms of direct casualties as well, well as the psychological damage and fallout of those that served and, of course, of those that were killed in the field on the other side. Um, and, and, but the, the one thing I can say, the good thing about America's overreaction to 9-11 was that it happened at a time that the U.S. was incredibly strong. The transatlantic relationship was very strong. Europe looked very strong and coherent. Um, no so, one had been that powerful since Rome at the height of its imperial powers, we were told at the time. At the time we were. And, and of course, Russia also was um, not... On its knees. Not, Russia was not – it was to a degree on its knees, but also it was reasonably aligned with the U.S. It wanted to help. It even provided support for bases in, in Russia's own backyard in Central Asia. And China, of course, was much weaker. Yeah. What worries me is that at some point in the next 10, 20 years, we will have another crisis. And God forbid it will be 9-11-like or maybe it will be a cyber attack or it will be a massive climate change issue. But whatever it is. If the Americans do not have a strategy and if instead we just overreact massively to that, we will be doing that in a context where the transatlantic relationship is radically weaker, where Europe is much less coherent and led by Germany, not as aligned with the U.S. as the Brits or French geopolitically, where Russia is vastly more obstreperous and revisionist and where China is so much more powerful. 
And so, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to answer your question one way or the other. I'm telling you that if it's not a president with clear and coherent leadership on the global stage for what America stands for, then the danger is that the United States will overreact in a way that truly undermines the strength of the country for generations. If you look at at your kind of thesis, which of those three um, strategies do you think America should adopt and which do you think that it's most likely to if it does manage to to settle on one? Well, I, I, I wrote this book not really understanding or knowing for myself which one I preferred. And I wrote it in part because I wanted to go through the arguments for myself to know what I thought. Um, and that, I that's do, a great questionnaire for anyone who, who wants to work out where they stand as well at the beginning and, of the book. And I took the questionnaire, uh, and I, I came out somewhat conflicted in my in my answers to the questionnaire, um, uh, mostly between Moneyball and Independent. I will tell you that the one I ultimately chose in the conclusion of the book is the one that I like the least, um, and it's it's Independent. And I chose it for two reasons. Um, first, I chose it because I believe the geopolitical order is moving more towards a world where independent is more likely. Um, in other words, if we don't choose today, if we don't, if our president doesn't choose in 2017, it's going to be harder and harder to choose indispensable or Moneyball um, because the geopolitical order, um, one that is has much more creative destruction and G zero as I describe it. Um, one where there's much more fragmentation, where the dollar is harder to, to serve as, its, as the single global reserve currency, where U.S.-led global standards are weaker, U.S. architecture and institutions like the IMF and World Bank are weaker and challenged by other organizations. It will be harder for the Americans to choose indispensable, certainly in that regard, and independent will seem more compelling. But the other reason I chose it is because when I look at the leaders that are running for president today for 2016, I do not find any of them that are compelling to me um, in, in being not only able to wrap themselves in the flag and talk indispensable, but that would actually be committed to acting that way. And so, in a sense, me saying independent is a bit of a challenge to the leadership that says, look, I don't really like this, but I think this is the best you can do um, and you need to prove to me otherwise. Make me want to vote for somebody that can choose a different path for the United States. And I would welcome that. So, you know, my conclusion is not the strongest conclusion because the book is not about which of the three choices I want. The book is really about the necessity of, of America having this debate and, and that hopefully we come out of it in a better place. Because that's one of the things that I was wondering when I was reading the book, because you start in this kind of existentialist um, uh, spirit and with a, with a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre saying, we are our choices. But isn't, is that really true? I mean, it kind of feels like you end in a more realistic place, which is to say, actually, the, you know, it, it, Americans are very narcissistic, like most people around the world, and they love to think that, they, that it is their choice whether, they, whether you decline, whether you rise, what your relationships are with other countries. But the, the kind of brutal reality is that though America's not declining at all, Power is shifting in the world, and um, in every region of the world, the U.S. 
will continue to be the most powerful external player, but it's it's increasingly having to respond to a kind of political and geopolitical environment where the main actors are regional actors and where the US is an important player, but it's not really the, the central determinant of order, which does seem to, to, to me to imply that, you know, even with the greatest president in the world with the most kind of strategic sense, being indispensable in the 21st century is going to be a lot more difficult than it was in the in the 20th century, well, at the very end of the 20th century anyway. And um, uh, therefore, the, it's great to think of this as a, a choice which you can make, but in many ways the choice is also going to be made by others outside. I, I think that's exactly right, um, Mark. And, and I guess where I come down here, the structure does matter and it does limit um, the impact of American choices. And so much as I would have liked to have written a book that came out and said, hey, Americans, on the basis of what we choose, we could change the entire world order. I don't believe that. I, I actually think that the, 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 the best the Americans can do um, is to make some choices that are really going to have an enormous impact on the future of the United States. And, and that we need to do that, and we need to do it soon, because otherwise the position of the United States will potentially erode in a way that the Americans won't be able to choose their way out of. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's a, a, a really, really thought-provoking book. I think it's the sort of process that every country, superpower or not, should have to go through, trying to work out what their interests are, what the external environment's going to be like and, and where, where they want to end up. Um, it's also great fun to read and I think very intellectually honest. I, I was surprised at where you ended up, but actually it makes sense when you go through the different arguments. So that brings us to our second book. It's called China's Strong Arm, Protecting Citizens and Assets Abroad. And that's written by Jonas Pereira-Plesner and Mathieu Duchatel. I'm joined down the line by Jonas Perello-Plesner, who is a Danish diplomat, a former senior policy fellow at ECFR, where he, I think he originally started working on this text. And he's talking to us from Washington. So Jonas, you've been thinking about this for, for a long time. I know this book uh, has been uh, on the cards for, for many years now. And I remember you were working at ECFR, actually, at the time of, of, of Libya. Do you want to tell us a bit about the genesis of the thinking behind it? Thank you, Mark. Yeah, and thanks for, for, for bringing me on. It's true. It's, it, it's, it's a long-standing project. And for me, sort of Libya was also somewhat of a watershed where China both showed a sort of new capacity and a willingness to sort of protect its, uh, its citizens abroad, which are spread out in, around the globe on often in quite uh, dangerous spots. Um, and um, so that's, that's a little bit where, where sort of some of the ideas for the book came from. And we wanted basically to do two things, Mathieu and I. In, in one sense, we wanted to do a quite sort of detailed study of what is sort of China inside the machine room. And we've been doing interviews over the years with uh, Chinese academics and Chinese um, uh, civil servants in both in the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and elsewhere of how do they do evacuation, how they react to crisis situations. From, uh, from Libya and other cases that we detail in the book. And so that was one. And I mean, 2011 was a really fascinating year because um, China that year rescued more than 47,000 Chinese abroad, which was more in a single year than the, in all the previous decades of the People's Republic of, of China. Um, so that was really a sort of an inflection point. Um, and the second 
second thing was more of the sort of the big idea of saying all this could have a sort of quite big impact on the way China does foreign policy, which is normally and classically embedded in what they call non-interference, that they, they want to sort of only privilege relations with government. They don't want to be meddling in other countries' affairs. They don't want to get in, involved too much in conflict resolution when conflict breaks out. And all that is sort of slightly... Um, being influenced by the fact of having nationals on the ground and that China therefore has to look at stability. I mean, I think one of the cases we uh, we uh, look at um, beyond Libya is South is, is Sudan's. How China first went in there only for the oil with their oil companies, and then gradually had to face all these different foreign policy conundrums of uh, South Sudanese independence, which is something that uh, China normally isn't that. Um, uh, keen on with its own uh, difficult question of, of Taiwan of um, and um, and had to do sort of evacuations and and were were subjected to kidnappings of it old workers and now China is actually part of the UNMIS the UN mission and has sent for the first time as a, a combat uh, battalion and with a revised mandate that says it also has uh, that the UN mission should also protect oil workers, which are predominantly Chinese. So here we see a combination of then being much more sort of multilaterally embedded, but also sort of blue hatting in a certain way national interest. Um, so these are some of the examples we sort of look and track throughout the book of how you could say a, this might be a big sort of driver and change of, of uh, Chinese foreign policy. And that's also what... Yeah. No, because in the book you talk about China's new global risk map and uh, both describe the places where Chinese citizens and companies live, but also some of the, the incidents which have taken place. Do you want to give us a, a brief uh, audio risk map? We can maybe put, a, if you've got uh, the, the graphics, we're happy to put them up on the website as well, because there is a, a beautiful map, actually, which shows all the attacks on it, which we could put on our website as well, if, uh, if you could send it to us. But do you I'll, want to give I'll, us an audio risk yes, map I'll, first? I'll pass that on and do the audio version <laughs> of it now. I mean, w what's been happening has been that the Chinese government uh, has had a business strategy for a number of years, the going out strategy of saying to the Chinese companies, go abroad. And they've been doing that. I mean, you, you had all majors, three Chinese big oil majors that have been going out uh, and particularly to risky places because a lot of the sort of more traditional sources had already been taken by, by Western companies. Uh, so we've seen that particularly in Africa, um, Asia and elsewhere. So in a sense, that sort of strategy has, has its life on its own and now it has just to be squared with more sort of, um, that has led to enormous amount of workers also out on these Chinese projects because these big Chinese state-owned companies often bring Chinese workers um, for mining, for construction, for uh, oil, uh, oil production. And, and they're, of course, exposed to the risk in the countries. So there's now a sort of tension, and that's really the global risk map, between uh, the Chinese more risk-prone companies, often state-owned, and the Chinese government that's classically basically he still doesn't really want to get involved and, and now suddenly has to. And so that's what we want to show with the risk map is really that by being exposed in so many places, by both having a large amount of workers, uh, citizens, and, and then having assets abroad, that really makes that China somehow is compelled and is, is sort of pulled abroad by, uh, by these interests, which is also why the sort of title has these historical parallels with China's strong arm, which comes from a... Um, a quotation from Palmerston and was a sort of how 
at that time when the British Empire was at, at its highest, that he says that China, that the UK's watchful eye, can sort of and strong arm, will keep uh, protection of every citizen abroad. And so that's what we're looking at. At when will China come to that point in being able to protect its citizens everywhere around the globe? Because that is the extraordinary thing about. I mean, in the, in the book, you use the the figure of five million Chinese nationals overseas. I've seen even larger figures in in other places, but there are literally. Chinese settlers in all sorts of different parts of the world, and people uh, have written about the parallels between these settlements and the early imperial settlements of Western countries, particularly in Africa. Uh, and you know, in many ways, the British Empire started with the uh, the East India Company, with these different settlers in, in other places who got into trouble and needed to be supported by the Chinese state. I mean, is that what you're trying to imply with your title, that you could see China moving from having a commercial empire to an actual uh, military empire in order to keep these these millions of citizens and companies safe? Well, definitely, there, there, are, there are examples of it moving that direction. I think one case we, we uh, describe in the book, the Mekong Rivers in 211, has really that element of it was 13 Chinese sailors that were brutally killed uh, on the Mekong River, on the sort of Burmese Laotian part of the uh, of, of the river, and and really the Chinese public and blockosphere exploded and and sort of demanded a reaction and and the Chinese government initially was a little bit slow and and then um, really uh, it got traction and and sort of got the neighboring countries summoned to Beijing and said, we have to solve this, and, and went in with a sort of joint police investigation, got hold of the, uh, the, uh, the kingpin behind it, a Burmese uh, drug lord, Nao Khan, brought him back to China, which was sort of extraterritorial justice, and got him executed in, in China in a very sort of swift um, uh, court case. And even during the at that uh, time, there's deliberations of using uh, and sort of a drone, an armed drone, to to go in, in, in into the jungles of the Mekong outside of China and and take out uh, Nao Khan, which would have been a really big step for for Chinese uh, foreign policy. And um, so I think there you really that, see that sort of. And was that with the agreement or against the wishes of the of the host government? No, that was still with the agreement of the host country, the host uh, governments. I mean, uh, the, the Thai um, were a little bit stronger on, on national sovereignty. There are now these sort of joint patrols, uh, which is primarily Chinese-led. Uh, but when it comes to Burma and, and Laos, because their own capacity basically to, to do it is so is, is so much less, it is more or less China that's the river cop for them uh, by now on the, the Mekong River. So they've taken on some responsibility there, but it's still sort of embedded in, in, in when China presented to the world that this is all with the agreement of the neighboring countries and this is joined and it's, it's, it's mutual and, and so on. So, of course, this doesn't, China is not going to sort of officially shed its non-interference principle because in many ways it gives it so many benefits of being a distinction from the way it does foreign policy from the West, that, that's, that's interfering, that's meddling with other people's human rights and democracy and so on. So, um, but in practice, it, it means that by having these interests, they will be compelled to look at different types of solutions that demand a completely different level of at least engagement with, with other countries to find solutions also uh, within their borders. So one, um, other, one other really fascinating example of that was, was Xi Jinping's 
very recent trip to Pakistan where they signed tens of billions of, uh, of dollars worth of uh, cooperation agreements to work on the Karakoram Highway and the, the port in Gwadar. Um, but the, I think the Pakistani government agreed to establish a, a security force of about 14,000 troops to protect Chinese workers and engineers who are building uh, these uh, projects alongside in the along the, the tribal areas. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Because that does seem quite incredible that an entire foreign legion uh, get almost gets established to, to protect uh, China. Yeah, no, Pakistan that is a very interesting case. I mean, first of all, of course, with, with Chinese sort of massive in, in, in investments in Pakistan, if they're likely to come to fruition. I mean, I think there's a history of caution there in the sense that China's early announced large projects in, 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 in Pakistan, and uh, they haven't really always come to fruition. Uh, Andrew Small's great book, recent book on China-Pakistan also sort of depict that story. But, um, but now it, it looks like they're willing, and of course you're looking at the security side of it, saying, well, if, if uh, we have to get in, you have to be able to uh, protect us differently um, than what has previously been the case. I mean, I think in 2007 there was at the rest Master's case where Chinese workers, or, or probably workers in a massage parlor, but nevertheless workers, um, were, were uh, kidnapped by, um, by militants and... Um, and so the Chinese are expecting sort of quite a lot of protection from the, 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 Pakistan, the Pakistani government because they know they're being targeted. And um, so it'll be interesting to see if, um, if the Pakistani are able to provide that level of, of um, security for the Chinese. And this is definitely sort of one of the cost efficient ways for the Chinese. I mean, they prefer, again, it's not, uh, uh, we're not saying in the book that they're looking now suddenly to do big uh, interventions in other countries. If, if the local government, like here, is promising them we will have a special force to take care of you, this is this is the basically the best for them. It, it, it's more in the the cases where the local government is not capable, uh, like has been the case in in the Sudan, like was the case with the Mekong River, of actually ensuring protection or justice for uh, for Chinese uh, workers. Then, of course, they have to look at what are are our own options for uh, for, for actions. So, in a sense. This year for them in Pakistan, if it plays out well, that they're protected and the, the Pakistani military uh, takes over uh, protection for them, that's, that's a great way of, of, of getting uh, fully engaged in a very dangerous and unstable country. So what are the other options short of uh, intervening themselves or using drones? How much are the Ch- Chinese using private military companies like uh, uh, Blackwater and uh, Blackwater? Blackrock? Blackwater? Yeah. Yeah. Black water, yeah, the, yeah. We, we 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 had sort of interviews on that and the discussion on that. I mean, you see some of the Chinese companies, of course, with the size they have, that they start like any big commercial company as well, uh, similar to Western companies, starting building their own rescue system, their own protection systems, in, in including um, with uh, uh, with private security companies. Of course, here I think there would be a dilemma if you had a really, if you speculate in scenarios, if you had like a black border incident with a Chinese company saying if it was, a, particularly if it was a state-owned company and it had bought protection and that protection company ended up killing local UG, how much would that also imply the Chinese government in the sense that it was a sort of state-owned company were, which would be slightly different maybe from a sort of um, Western case if it was a, a, a private um, uh, oil major. 
So I think there's a big question in here behind about sort of risk and liability between government, the state-owned companies, and uh, after Libya, which we tracked in the book, they really tried the Chinese government to sort of put in more criteria for risk management, for saying the companies have to sort of do more due diligence so they just don't run out into complete danger spots and afterwards expect that the Chinese government will come and and, and sort it out. So I think a lot of this will also depend on events. I mean, we, we also quote... Uh, 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 the good old quote of what makes up foreign policy events, events. And a lot of the things and the cases we've had have been sort of event driven. So China has sort of taken a lot of sort of ad hoc uh, responses uh, to it. So so you see different ways, either relying on the host government, like it's in the Pakistani case, taking more action like they did themselves, but still based on cooperation with other countries, like in Mekong, then being embedded in a multilateral um uh, situation, uh, solution like you see in the South Sudan where they say well we can contribute through the UN and the fact that we can use that as well to protect our own na national interest uh, sort of makes sense and at the same time it shows that as a responsible stakeholder. And then you have the evacuations where, where they've been on their own and the most recent one is, is in Yemen where they went in with um, their two frigates, military uh, ships and did a sort of military evacuation out of Yemen back in, in, in March where they managed also to not just evacuate more than 600 Chinese uh, workers in Yemen, they actually took on a little bit more than uh, 200, uh, let me see precisely, 279, I think it was, other foreign nationals from a war-torn Yemen. So they've used that as well to portray this as saying, see our military presence abroad uh, is also sort of benign. We, we would do this not just for ourselves, but also to help... Um, Twelve other countries. So you talk about events. One of the events that a lot of my Chinese friends were speculating about when I was in uh, in Beijing a few weeks ago was what would happen if a Chinese national is beheaded by ISIS. What do you think? Yeah, that is a good one. That that is really one of the ones you could make a scenario um, that you could make a scenario about the sort of the outcry. And I think it would really be event-driven. Uh, I think the initial Chinese government reaction would be, I mean, again, not to sort of get engaged over their heads because that could just then lead to, to other conundrums. But you could have, have, have a really sort of strong popular reaction saying now we have to be, uh, we have to be much, uh, much stronger. And you see the terrorism law as well as a sort of the new Chinese terrorism law that's being... Um, uh, debated, which does include the option for for taking action also abroad. Um, so, um, so in that sense, uh, it, it's not impossible to sort of see a sort of strong, um, uh, uh, much stronger Chinese reaction than what is normally warranted by the non-interference policy. One of the other scenarios we speculate about would more be like one of the countries that are a little bit off the map from Western interest, and and we singled out Angola where China has more than 200,000 uh, workers, has a lot of investments. It's relatively stable now. So, I mean, knock on wood, I'm not saying that this will happen tomorrow. But if we imagine Angola going to civil strife, we could suddenly have China being the one clamoring in, in the UN Security Council for a multilateral force and perhaps being the one contributing the most uh, troops to it and getting some Bangladeshis and Pakistanis along to make it uh, multilateral and, and the West being a little bit less 
uh, interested with us being um, bogged down in both the Middle East and uh, and for Europe's case also, of course, what happens on, on our eastern front with Ukraine and um, and uh, and so forth. So that's one of the other cases we sort of took on as as a sort of uh, scenario type. Um, and staying on the scenarios, you also have the question of, is it only Chinese citizens, which is a really interesting question. For the government, yes, it's clearly just passport holders that are sort of, but of course, China has a huge contingent of overseas uh, Chinese as well in, in many places. And for the Chinese public, the difference isn't that necessary that big whether so so that you see slightly with 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 the burma case where what you have is uh fights with um, ethnic uh chinese on on the other side of the burmese border and um and uh, and there of course you could sort of have scenarios where china could become more russia style sort of following in the footsteps of, of Putin, who's committed to protect any ethnic Russians abroad. And that would, of course, be a, a big sort of, I'm not, we're not seeing that, and that's highly unlikely, but uh, that would, of course, be a big sea change for particularly countries in uh, Southeast Asia if China uh, was much more sort of forcefully protecting also uh, overseas Chinese in, uh, in some of these countries. So what you're describing really is a, a world that's upside down as the West loses its interest in intervention, tries to find excuses not to put people boots on the ground and not to get too sucked into the domestic problems of, of countries around the world. China, this long-standing champion of the principle of non-intervention, is increasingly finding itself drawn into conflicts and crises situations all over the world and could even end up calling for the United Nations and other multilateral organisations to, to be spearheading those interventions. So fascinating thesis and I'm sure there'll be lots of scope to come back to this as uh, citizens get in trouble in different places as companies face danger in the many risky spots where they've uh, settled and also as war seems to spread from country to country making every single region of the world less safe and less stable than it was in the very recent past. So thank you very much, Jonas. It was a fascinating discussion. So we now come to the last segment of this podcast, which is the, the bookshelf segment, where we all talk about what's on our bookshelves, apart from the two books that we've been discussing. Ian, what, what are you taking away to the beach with you this summer when you go to Nantucket? Uh, so I'll tell you the book that I've read that I think everyone should read this summer if they haven't yet uh, finished recently. It's called Super Sad True Love Story. Um, by uh, Gary Steingart, and uh, you know, you may be surprised to hear me uh, to talk about uh, a, a, a fiction book, um, but uh, you know, it's an incredibly lyrically written novel, uh, and it also is the most realistic uh, sort of near dystopia um, that I've come across in the 21st century um, in terms of what happens in a world that increases increasingly fragments where governance is more poor, um, where climate uh, continues to cause problems, and most importantly, um, where the e effectiveness of technology um, uh, continues to grow, but in a manner that is largely unchecked and unregulated. Um, I, I found it both 
a, a, a really poignant read, uh, but also one that really makes you think and needs to be read in the summer where you don't you know, fall asleep afterwards or go to work, but you can reflect on it a bit. So Jonas, when you go to your Danish beach, what are you going to be taking down with you? Yeah, no, I, I put a lot of books down on my Kindle here for uh, for summer reading, but the ones I'm I'm dug into at the moment is um, on on China specific. It's China the China Pakistan axis um, by Andrew Small from uh, the German Marshall Fund, um, uh, a fellow friend of uh, of both of us, and um, but uh, which is really a sort of treasure trove of small details on on the China-Pakistan relationship and, and basically also broader in the region now with Afghanistan and when the Western troops are leaving and how China is, is, is uh, making inroads into reconciliation with the Taliban. And uh, so it's a very sort of timely book on, uh, on a part of China's relations to its Western front that's maybe not that explored when everybody at the moment is looking at the South China Sea and how China is behaving at sea, then then uh, looking at its relationship, China's relationship with Pakistan and Afghanistan is uh, it's really interesting. The other one I'm reading is uh, is a book called An End to Suffering, The Buddha and the World by Pankar Mishra, who is uh, an Indian uh, journalist, uh, writer. And that sort of intrigued me because Buddhism normally is sort of, uh, or at least the way I... I saw it maybe a little bit naively as a sort of religion of peace and then particularly when you see Burma and Rakhine where you have very sort of strong nationalist uh, Buddhist um, um, extremists also against uh, Muslims I wanted to understand a little bit better uh, Buddhism and that's a quite interesting book that both takes Pankramisra around um, India where he follows in the footsteps of the Buddha and then has a lot of re- reflections um, on him so uh, so that's uh, I'm not completely done with that one yet but that's really worth a read so my recommendation for this summer is uh, a book that came out a few years ago but it's about another superpower in the making which is Saudi Arabia and it's a, a great book called Hologram for a King by Dave Eggers, who has emerged, I think, as a kind of would-be Aldous Huxley, George Orwell for our times with his uh, att- attempts to, to look at the dystopian futures in the internet. And this is an attempt to, to think about the role of Saudi Arabia as, as it emerges. It's a, it's a great read. It's a lot of fun, like his other books, not too deep. And uh, I think will entertain you as you lie on the beach. So that brings our podcast to an end. From Ian Bremer in Washington, Jonas Pereo-Plesner in Denmark and Washington, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke. Our producer is Katarina Butel-Azzinaro. <laughs>